much anticipation, Justice Paul Rouleau has released his final report for the Public Order Emergency Commission, finding that the Canadian government's use of the Emergencies Act against the trucker convoy last February was appropriate. But noting that he came to this conclusion reluctantly. Well, my guest on the program today had a front row seat for both the convoy protests in Ottawa and for the commission. And he joins me today to talk about what this report means for Canada going forward. Paul Wells is an award-winning Canadian journalist, the author of a popular substack, and the host of the Paul Wells Show podcast. His latest book is An Emergency in Ottawa, the story of the Convoy Commission, and it's out early next month. Paul Wells is my guest today on Lean Out. Paul, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. So nice to have you on. I do think you're the perfect person to talk through this really important moment in Canadian history with. So first, the commission found that Canada's use of emergency powers was appropriate, uh, particularly given the police dysfunction and, and the political infighting. But just as Paul Rouleau came to this conclusion reluctantly, to start, for listeners who may not know, can you just give us a brief explainer on the commission? How did it work? What was it tasked with determining? So the commission is a creature of the Emergencies Act itself. The Emergencies Act was passed in the 1980s at a very different time in in Canada's history and had never been used since then. But because the Emergencies Act was designed to be harder to use than the War Measures Act that it replaced, one of the provisions in the act is that every time it's used, there's supposed to be a commission of inquiry to examine the, the decision. And so as soon as the government of Canada used the Emergencies Act to break up the convoy in Ottawa at the, at the beginning of 22, they knew that there would be a commission of inquiry that would be reporting in a little less than a year. That also is required by the law. Now, the commission heard more than 60 witnesses. I actually think in the end, more than 70 witnesses. And it heard them in a very compressed amount of time simply because the judge who uh, was in charge of it, this Justice Paul Rouleau, got sick. And so he he missed more than a month of the planned hearings. And so when he came back, they heard all the witnesses they were going to hear. And they just they they, they had long, long days, 10, 12 hour days, uh, hearing witnesses at length, questioned both by the commission's own counsel and by lawyers representing all the different parties, the protesters, citizens of Ottawa, the various governments. And and so it was a very intense look at decision making in a moment of chaos, and that's kind of what uh, what I found interesting as I set out to write this uh, this uh, short book. Mm-hmm. And as, as someone, you were in Ottawa during the convoy crisis. You you covered the hearings, as you yeah. just mentioned. You're writing this book on the commission. Now, you recently wrote in your Substack that you remain unpersuaded by some of Rillo's reasoning. How so? Yeah. So I think special laws to impose order in a public order emergency should be used sparingly and reluctantly. And in this case, I think that the police were finally getting their act together and were in a good position to finally make some progress against the convoy protesters 
without the use of the act. And so I think it would have been useful to give them some more time. In the end, hundreds of people had charges put pressed against them in the wake of the convoy, but none of those charges were under the public order emergency uh, provisions. In other words, all of the charges after the convoy were ordinary criminal charges that didn't require the Emergencies Act, which is part of what leads me to think that I, it, I, I'm still not convinced that we actually needed the Emergencies Act. That being said, the police were just a hell of a mess. I'm writing now the chapter on the police during the crisis, and it was a tremendously chaotic, contradictory response. And 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 so what I also said in my piece was, even though I disagree with Paul Rouleau on the central question at hand, I have a hard time getting too riled up about it because in the end, the use of the act was very limited. So... Hmm. I, I do. I have concerns about what this means for Canada going forward. I was very convinced by a um, recent op-ed in the Globe and Mail by U of T law professor Daniel Schneiderman, you know, as as you say, that these are extraordinary last resort powers, that it sets, you know, a troubling precedent. But I do have to say, I did find Justice Rouleau, um, that the report reads is pretty fair and pretty even-handed. And I do think it goes away to establishing how dynamic and volatile and chaotic these protests could be. Let's talk a little bit about the context. Rouleau makes a pointed effort to talk about the roots of this populist uprising, including economic marginalization, social anxiety, distrust in institutions. And this line really stands out. COVID-19 measures, for example, were seen by some as rules imposed by a political elite that inflicted terrible economic harms on working people. What do you make of his analysis? To some extent, it almost well. So I I share his analysis, and and it almost doesn't matter whether I think that these were to- horrible restrictions that that that, that imposed um, economic hardship. What matters is that there were an awful large number of people who who did feel that way, and no government was going to change their mind. And it turns out that when you paint all those people into a corner, some of them respond badly, and that's a dynamic that governments, I think in the future should simply keep in mind. So one thing I'm going to do in this book is go through a fairly extended history of vaccine skepticism, going back as far as there have been vaccines. I myself think these vaccines were useful, that they worked as needed, and that they did not cause uh, substantial extra uh, fatalities. But what we've seen is that throughout the history of vaccinations, there are people who, for different reasons at different times, don't trust them. And so again, I don't think it actually helps governments to designate these people who disagree as the outgroup and, you know, essentially radicalize them. Um, there, there's two personalities who responded very differently to this whole thing. One was French President Emmanuel Macron, who was kind of a substantial influence on Trudeau in, in his handling of the pandemic. At one point, Macron said, Macron was the guy who said, we're not going to require vaccinations, but we're going to forbid access to most public activities to people who don't have vaccinations. So that was the idea of vaccine passports to get into restaurants, cultural activities, concerts, and so on. And Macron memorably says at one point that he wanted to emmerder les non-vaccinés, to piss off the non-vaccinated people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people had a good laugh over that. Well, you know, it turns out when you piss people off, they get pissed off. And, And I think that's a lesson to take in the future. And then the other figure who I wasn't sure I agreed with at the time 
was Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec. He was on the verge of imposing a tax, a health contribution tax, on people who refused to be vaccinated. Another measure to try and coerce people into getting vaccinated. And he canceled that measure because the convoy had occupied Ottawa. And there were other protesters who were heading for Quebec City. And he said at the time, I am not going to go ahead with this thing because I don't want to increasingly marginalize non-vaccinated people. Hmm. And at the time, I wasn't sure I bought the wisdom of it, but I'll tell you, it looks smarter and smarter as time goes up, goes by. Make vaccines available to all. Strongly encourage everyone to get vaccinated. Do public awareness campaigns, you know, whatever you want to do. But as soon as you start to ostracize people for for getting for not getting vaccinated, I'm not sure that the tiny incremental gains in vaccination rates are worth the social strife that you're almost inevitably creating. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a. I mean, Rulo says that he came to his conclusions reluctantly. That's that's a conclusion that I've reached reluctantly. Mm. Yeah, throughout the I was against the vaccine mandates, and throughout the pandemic, the the mail that I got from people, and just the way that those strifes between families, between coworkers. I mean, it just I think it really did a lot in terms of social cohesion in this country that is is troubling. Um, I want to talk for a moment about misinformation. So Justice Rouleau makes an interesting distinction about misinformation that you have drawn attention to, that the truckers could be both victims of it and spreaders of it. And he, he talks about victims in the sense that media coverage often amplified the small extremist element. One of the examples he gives is the arson, um, which we know was not connected to the protesters. And he noted that while most protesters were not violent, they were disruptive. Um, what role do you think media mischaracterization contributed to this crisis? So I'm not, well, uh, that's actually a difficult question for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, I actually was at no point assigned to cover the convoy because when the convoy was happening, I was working for McLean's magazine under what was then new management. And they were they astonished me by not being interested in, in, in the convoy. And that persists to this day. That utter lack of interest in the largest news story in the country is part of what led me to eventually leave McLean's. But the upshot is that at the time, I spent less time out there at the coal face than most of my colleagues. What I hear from my colleagues is that they were that they they had abuse uh, shouted at them all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sort of not interested in, in in allocating fault for that. The people shouting at them were upset because they thought they were being mischaracterized in the in, in, in the media and so on and so on. It's a it's a it was a vicious circle, and 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 the convoy was a ended up being just kind of a toxic environment for almost everyone around it. I I do think that people participated in the convoy for a variety of reasons. People's perceptions of the convoy were probably complex and nuanced. So you had polling that said, do you agree with the with the convoy protesters? And the and the and 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 the answers were very low. But then you had polling from there was an Ipsos poll where the question was, even though I might not agree with everything they're saying, I understand their frustrations. And the yes response to that was quite a bit higher. And so I think all of us, journalists, public officials, ordinary folks, might conclude that they don't don't win when they shut down the part of their brain that exercises feelings of empathy. We don't actually get ahead when we decide that our side of a debate is right 
down the line and the other side of the debate is not worth listening to. Mm-hmm. I uh, Just as a practical matter, I don't think that that produces the kind of social victories that people seem to think it does. Yeah. And I mean, the report also criticizes our prime minister for inflaming the situation with his comments about this being a fringe minority. This is something the Global Mail editorial board has also criticized him for recently, calling this demonization and a failure of empathy, to your point, and pointing out that this divisiveness caused one of his own MPs to break ranks during the crisis. This is something you were writing about quite a while ago. Missing from the whole public conversation, Rulo points out, is the fact that protesters were exercising fundamental democratic rights. What do you see that omission in, of the conversation? What role did that play in this crisis? Well, it was. A, I mean, it was an interesting moment in the middle of the whole mess. This liberal MP, Joel Lightbound from Quebec City, despite his English name, Francophone MP, gives a news conference in which he says, essentially, we're sowing what we reaped when we were reaping what we sowed. We're reaping what we sowed. You can tell I'm not a farmer. Um, when we ran a campaign on, we're right about vaccines and these other people are wrong. Suddenly, these other people are in Ottawa and uh, we don't know how to get rid of them. And and Lightbound until then was the consummate team player. He was a very loyal liberal MP. He's tried as hard as he can to go back to being a liberal, a loyal liberal MP since since his outburst. But what was the what was the context of his outburst? His outburst was again, you're trying to govern for the whole country. You're trying to govern on competent government, and it looks a little less clever in hindsight to have won re-election on we're right and they're wrong on COVID restrictions. And I do think that, you know, so all sorts of groups appeared at the commission, different police organizations, different governments, uh, municipal governments in Coots, Alberta and and Windsor. The only government that that spent the run-up to the convoy commission talking mostly internally about how they were going to communicate their response to the to the convoy rather than how they were going to respond to it. The only the only group that was obsessed with communications and marketing was the government of Canada uh, of Justin Trudeau. And the kind of merry chatter among junior communications staffer and the fe- staffers in the federal government saying, well, we think this is really good. We can tie this to June 6 and Donald Trump, and then we can get some really positive messaging out, I think is all out of proportion to the sometimes very lackadaisical response to the actual security challenge. And it basically shows that as this convoy approached, a lot of people in the federal government thought they could have some fun with it. And that, well, that didn't last. Pretty soon it was not as fun. Mm. And let's let's spend just a moment on the, on the actual security threat and definition of that. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer. Um, But the CSIS definition appears to me to not have been met. Certainly the Canadian Civil Liberties Association contends this threshold was not met. Um, And during the commission, we heard some pretty contradictory evidence. We heard uh, our CSIS director say at no point did the service assess that the protests in Ottawa or elsewhere constituted a threat to the security of Canada as defined by Section 2 of of this Act, but also recommending that it was used anyways. Um, how, How do we make sense of that? That's a really hard question because, so the Emergencies Act says that the government has to understand on reasonable grounds that there's a a threat to the public order of Canada and that 
threat to public order is as defined under the CSIS Act. And CISA said that by their own understanding of things, this was not a this was not a public order emergency. But the Justice Department says we still think the test was met. And then they say because of solicitor client privilege, because it was government lawyers advising the government on how to respond, we can't even show you the our own internal reasoning to explain why we think that the act was worth using even though the test that set out in the act wasn't met. Uh, so long story short, they said, we came up with a very surprising conclusion and we're not going to tell you why. The only good news in all of that is that Justice Rulo's conclusion is not the last word. Because the Emergencies Act doesn't relieve, doesn't remove people's uh, protections under our Charter of Rights, they still get court redress. And uh, a lot of people have challenged the Emergencies Act in courts. And Justice Rulo's conclusions don't affect those court cases. And so the last word on whether the, whether the act was um, properly used is going to come down to other judges in courtrooms uh, on specific cases. And, and so we might yet hear a different conclusion. You might yet hear a court say, that's all nice what Justice Rulo said, but that's not legally binding. Yeah. And I still don't find that the Emergencies Act was properly used because of the CSIS test. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's four four of those challenges in federal court coming up. So yeah. we will wa- watch that. Um, but getting back to this issue of transparency, I'm having a hard time thinking that kind of through that. I mean, on the one hand, the government here, this is a highly unusual glimpse into the workings of government. There are thousands of pages of documents that have been made available to the public. But on the other hand, as you point out, this legal interpretation of the legislation is protected under solicitor client privilege. How do you think through this issue of transparency? Well, in the end, the the greater dissuasion on future governments thinking of using this act might not be what a commission of inquiry thinks on the narrow question or or the sort of technical question of the of, of of whether the act was properly used. It might be the horrible spectacle to politicians of seeing all their internal memos dragged out on the evening news for for months on end. Uh, we're in an environment now where large organizations everywhere, not just governments, large businesses, almost any uh, like the people I used to work for at the big companies I used to work for. Nobody likes to see their internal processes made public. And government political staffers that I know were horrified to see so-and-so's memos. Marco Mendicino and David Lametti, the ministers of public safety and justice, joking about using tanks. And I think they were just joking. But I, I could I know they sure didn't enjoy seeing that the, the, those jokey little um, text messages on, on on the evening news. And I think that that's as likely to dissuade future governments from using this stuff as anything is the prospect of seeing of allowing people to see how the sausage gets made um, on the question of whether solicitor client privilege properly protects the justice minister justice department's call. I'm no more of an expert than you. I'll say I was surprised that that uh, runaround satisfied Justice Rulo. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on accountability here as well. How significant do you think it is that the Ontario Premier Doug Ford and uh, Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones refused to be interviewed by um, Commission Counsel? 
I, I think it's ridiculous. There followed an interesting court confrontation over whether Premier Ford was required under law or could be uh, could be made to testify by commission counsel. And I think his defense of parliamentary privilege won the day. But it's not just how you perform under the rules. Doug Ford was elected in large measure by people who didn't like federal government restrictions uh, regarding COVID. And yet he strongly supported the use of the Emergencies Act. Quite a different stance from the premiers of Alberta and Quebec who were conservative leaning, but disagreed on the Emergencies Act. And Doug Ford is in charge of the Ontario Provincial Police and Windsor and Ottawa are large municipalities in Ontario. And on and on and on. As, as a matter of helping us to understand uh, how we are governed, to me, it's automatic that he should have been uh, testifying at the commission. But there's a long history of this. So one thread in my book is changes in the way police think about policing large protests that came out of the Ipperwash disaster of 1995, when some Indigenous protesters were uh, raising attention about ancient land claims. And um, the Ontario police moved in and killed one of the protesters. That happened at the beginning of Mike Harris's time as Premier of Ontario. And there was never a commission of inquiry uh, into that incident until eight years later when Mike Harris and his party were out of power. And Harris's successor called the commission of inquiry into that disaster. So there's a bit of a history of Ontario premiers chickening out of public accountability for their handling of uh, security crises. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that incident in 1995, because I want to pull back and look at the big picture here. And, and what does this all mean going forward for us, for freedom of expression, for freedom of assembly in this country? What, what are your thoughts on what could be the lasting impact of, of POEC? So one of the big ones for me is this question of how police respond to large uh, demonstrations, because there have been more and more, and there will be more and more in the future. And there's a doctrinal dispute among officers about whether you go in with helmets and shields and and, and riot gear and um, crack down, in the popular expression, on large demonstrations be they anti-vax, be they indigenous, be they environmentalist, you know. And then there's another group within the police that say, no, when we do that, people get their backs up. It doesn't actually improve security. It puts our police at risk because the possibility of violent reprisal increases. And there's another way, which is to engage and listen and calmly state police preference and that was the work of police liaison teams, which had sporadic success during the convoy, but not enough because uh, some police commanders and certainly the federal government thought this was all hocus pocus in it, and they they wanted some real policing. Uh, so that dispute is something that I think is 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 very interesting to follow. And then uh, the other thing is how are we going to handle people who disagree? with the science on some of these public health emergencies going forward. And I think the lesson is that we should mistrust the instinct that says, look, because I've got a scientist who says this is the way it's got to be, so nobody is permitted to uh, disagree with that. 
I just don't think that that produced the results that a lot of people assumed it would. Like, I don't, you know, there are mm. people who will not be persuaded by that. There are people who will conflate their economic circumstances uh, with the answers to these public health questions. And and I, I just don't think that, I don't think emmerder les non-vaccinés, pissing off the, non, the unvaccinated, uh, as a practical matter, I don't think it helps. Mm. It seems too we have to allow room for the science itself to change, right? In situations like this where things are rapidly evolving and some questions seem clear early on and then change within a few months as well. Yeah, I think I mean I persist in thinking science had a pretty good day and that it and and that in fact it uh, on questions like whether masks were beneficial or not that the science did change. But um you know, one of the things I point out early on is that one of the things that the commission in in some of its preparatory material for this for this commission pointed out is that the government of ontario had 200 orders of in council 200 different regulations regarding response to the to the virus in the first year without even getting into what those uh, regulations were that pace of change in public information it was just ridiculous to hope that people could keep up with that many different changes the permitted crowd size is going from 50 to 30 to 15 to 10 to actually uh, in by the summer of 2020, there was a bit of brief euphoria and suddenly any number of people could get together again. And then the, the, the numbers start going down, different numbers inside and outside, different numbers in Ontario and in Quebec, curfew in Quebec, but not if you had to walk a dog and then debates over what's the nature of a dog and so on. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was in any future pandemic, I think one simple rule of thumb should be governments should forbid themselves from fine tuning the regulations that frequently and at that level of detail. Because even the people who want to cooperate with that, it's just imp it's absolutely impossible to keep track of all of that shit. And uh, at some early point, governments should have started to be ashamed of themselves for expecting people to change the way that they were supposed to live their lives again and again and again and again and again. And again, one of the kind of minor points about this this whole mess is that by the time it happened, we had been go we had been put through all of this silliness in some cases for two years, just you know, and. I was the vaccine. I, I, I was the masking and vaccine enforcer in my household. I'm multiple doses of vaccine. I buy all of this stuff, but it's easy for me. I could work from home. I've got a webcam. Someone who has a delivery truck, or an aluminum siding company, uh, or who works in retail didn't have that privilege, and it's not surprising that some of those people ended up having less patience for all of this. That's a really good point. I, I just have two last questions for you. The first one is I'm just very curious about your process here. And you've been able to dive into this a lot more in detail than most of us have the resources to. I mean, there was hundreds of hours of testimony, thousands of pages of documents. Was there anything that you changed your mind on during that process? I mean, I think I have changed my mind on the utility of ratcheting up the pressure to get maximum adhesion to public health measures. Because on the face of it, it makes a lot of sense. I've got friends who keep coming at, they're still coming at me with this idea, with a, a war metaphor. 
in a war you would not have it would not have been permitted for you to let your guard down against the against the enemy and i gently say first of all i'm not sure this was a war the virus is too stupid to know it's in a war but secondly in actual wars people let their guards down all the time during the blitz of london when bombs were falling out of the sky there were still concerts and people were going out to essentially frivolous events that put them in higher danger of being actually killed by actual bombs because the public authorities understood that you have to live your life anyway. And so I don't think the best metaphor is the the invented hypothetical solidarity of a population in wartime. The best metaphor is essentially statistics. You want to get you want to get to a situation where the virus has less of a chance to spread than it did before understanding that it will spread to some extent anyway and that people can't end up hating each other and so i didn't like i didn't like the convoy i reject the notion that this was a festive celebration of our freedoms i was glad when those folks left town i'm happy that they have not been successful in coming back but the but but the thing is what i was never going to be able to do was be to change their mind and I'll tell you, Justin Trudeau was going to be even less successful in changing their mind because he was the guy making them angry. So instead of trying to change your mind or instead of trying to designate the people who disagree with you as an outgroup and then vacuum up all the votes of the people who are on your side of a, of a polarized dispute, I'm old enough to remember when governments used to try and function in a reality where they weren't even they weren't going to win all the arguments. And I and that's why my initial skepticism of Francois Legault pitching some measures overboard because he had to govern for the whole society. Uh, I, I that looks that that makes more sense the more I think about it. Mm. And just just lastly, I mean, in my twenty something year journalism career, this is the most polarizing thing I've ever covered. I think the divisiveness that has come from this is going to take us years to get over. You have publicly called for us to start moving beyond these divisions. What would it look like for us as a country to start healing from this? Oh, you know, I think this government, I think this country is going to be fine. I think, um, I think people are already climbing down a bit from some of the heated rhetoric of last year and of the of the three years that we've all been through. And I speak to more and more urban, culturally liberal professionals who were able to work from home and who got vaccinated and all of that, who are willing to pay some attention to the notion that being on one side of a polarizing debate isn't a, isn't as satisfying as a, as, a, as as you might think, that it doesn't produce the best results. And look, I've I've got I've got plenty of friends who who are still ready to go to the barricades against people who disagreed with them on vaccination, and I expect I'm going to be hearing from them after uh, after this podcast comes out, after my book comes out. But I hear from more and more people who say, you know what? Between Justin Trudeau, who said we're right and they're wrong, and Joel Lightbound, who said that's a shitty way to frame things, there's more and more people who think Joel Lightbound might have had a point. Well, uh, that is an optimistic place to leave it. I, I think this work is so important. I'm so glad that you have done this deep dive into this commission. I can't wait to read the book. Thank you for taking the time today, Paul. Thanks for talking. 
Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 